Hi, this is Tamsin Gringer. And this is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan read the paper on Wednesday, May 3rd. Yeah. 2023. Yeah, because we were confused because we're, we fly between time zones and it's very confusing. We didn't pass the international dateline, but we might as well have. I'm completely out of it. Well, we were on a trip. We went to California to mm-hmm. celebrate Zeke's birthday. Right. And He's vis- getting up there. And visit Zeke's family. Yeah, we Noel. called on the little, the lovely Pepper. Yes, and Noel, of course. And Noel. Uh, yes, the lovely Pepper, the two-year-old Pepper. Right? The bell of the ball. At one point said, let me show you our latest invention. Yes. Proving once again. Yeah. Kids say the darndest things. No, 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 no. That was perfectly logical. That's the interesting thing about her. She she says, let me show you my invention. And she's, she's showing you things that she didn't invent. But uh, that doesn't bother her. She's showing you stuff. So, you know, she takes pride as if she invented it. And when you're two years old, you can get away with that. People uh, go with that. So she's pretty cute. So we had a nice trip to California, several days out there. And the, the strangest thing, perhaps, was the weather there is precisely the same as the weather in Pennsylvania. The same exact temperature. Except you feel colder because you, it's ex- California and you think it's going to be warmer. Yeah. It was and windier. it's cold. And, yeah. And, it's, you know, uh, and here, because here the 50s and 60s seem warm. Yeah. After winter. Right. And uh, uh, But there, 50s and 60s seem cold. Right. Well, it's also, it's the way everything's built here. You're going inside, people have the heat on, you know, it's it's different. But uh, we still had a couple of uh, excellent bike rides down the coast there, on the left coast. They do have some great bike paths there. And I think it's even in California. Like paved paths. Paved paths, really. Along, easy, along the beach. Easy along, to ride along on. Along the coast. Yeah. And other places. But, yeah. um, Just fantastic rides uh, along we, the coast. Yeah. And, you know, we were at a, an Airbnb, which has a couple of older bikes. And, you know, it challenges your anatomy to have to exist on those bikes a little bit. You get a little sore maybe, but it's, it was worth it. You know, it was uh, it was quite a nice bike ride. Yeah, you go by the ocean, the surfers, the tourists, right. uh, and uh, you're gazing up at the hills on one side, the ocean on the other side, the pelicans. Yeah. It's... Uh, it was quite a delight. And I had a, a nice drive down, down the coast meeting a friend for lunch. Went to a restaurant that we had seen many times but never ventured in called Neptune's Net, which is exactly what you'd expect it to be, sort of a surfside uh, attraction. Kind uh, of a seafood shack. A seafood shack, if you will. But it's but, in Malibu, so it's yeah. a little... And it's big. Nice. And so it's not a little thing. And uh, it's, it's right on the coast. And uh, you'd think the food would be better, but it's not. But uh, <laughs> I knew it wasn't going to be fancy, but I thought they'd know how to fry. But, uh, you know, it could have been the cook's day off. Who knows? But it, it's not, you're not there for the food. I can confirm that. Uh, so it was kind of interesting. So And we, and we did have a good birthday celebration with Zeke. Yeah. Right? We, uh, Pepper yes. and I made cupcakes. Yeah. Pepper was in charge of the sprinkles. She has a heavy hand with the sprinkles, that girl. Yeah. Well, she, what she does, she does well. Yes. She's, she's going to make her mark, you know. She's, uh, no, but she participates in the making of the batter and uh, spreading of the frosting. You know, it's, uh, she's got her hand in she it. She also helped me make dinner one night. But she was very clear the whole time yeah. that we were making this for mommy and daddy. And she wasn't going to eat it. That kids don't eat this stuff. Right, yeah. I mean, not that it was that weird. It was chicken shawarma. But... Well, she made, I made pudding with her and she uh, she was very helpful. 
She was. She was very into it. She just walked up she to me. She did eat the pudding, actually. She did announce to me, it's time to make pudding. <laughs> <laughs> it's pudding time. I said, okay, I'll be right there. Count me in. So the other opportunity we have when we fly out to the coast is, is that's when we catch up on our movie viewing and the flights. So the uh, first movie we saw together, you know, because there are movies that you feel bad you didn't see. So I should have seen that. I just couldn't bring myself to, to get off the couch. Uh, we saw The Fablemans, which is the um, Steven Spielberg movie, uh, the semi-autobiographical movie uh, about how he grew up in California and became a filmmaker. And uh, it was a contender for the Academy Award for Best Picture. At one point, I think early in the season, it was a favorite. Uh, got some warm reviews. It got a few tepid reviews. So uh, what did you think? I was a little bored. Yeah. I, I told you I thought it was kind of self-indulgent. Yeah. I mean, it, I think the story was very interesting to him. Uh, I just got bored. Yeah. I You know, I was disappointed. I, I Look, I, I was a better bet to like the movie than you, probably. But uh, I'm kind of with you on this. I mean, I, I thought... He, he kind of strung together a couple of events which really resonated him, resonated with him in terms of earmarking uh, significant developments in his childhood and his relationship with his parents and the like. And while they resonated with him, I don't think it resonated with anybody else particularly. So he attached a little too much significance or perhaps they felt that they were worth the uh, attention that he lavished on them. Uh, they weren't actually that dramatic or that interesting, or frankly, the characters weren't as sympathetic as perhaps I, th- I think he thought they were. And I'm thinking here of his his mother. So, um, yeah, uh, it was a little bit of a miss for me. I was kind of shocked. I thought it would be very, very good, and it wasn't. So th- we don't give that a high score. And then we saw Elvis. That you know, I kind of put it on as the we had a little time left, so I saw the first 20 minutes and. You saw a little bit, and you picked up and saw the rest of the movie on the way back. So, what do you yeah, think? Yeah, I don't Elvis? even know why. Well, you don't have to apologize, <laughs> but you didn't no, like the I, movie. I, you know, I was excited at the beginning because there was, uh, you know, some uh, coverage of uh, the influence of black music mm-hmm. on him mm-hmm. and others. And uh, he goes to a few black clubs. Yeah. And uh, so... I kind of thought that might continue more or some. I don't know what I thought, but um, in the end, the movie just really dwells on Colonel Parker. I, I think I was supposed to know that, um, his manager and how he... Well, you're only supposed to know because I told you that, but yes. Yeah, that was no, I think if you read the reviews, yeah. if you read the summaries, you know... This is, even from the beginning, it's, uh, it's, it's Tom it's, Hanks, it's, Colonel Parker, telling the story. Or, or it's framed by Colonel Parker. So I was Parker. just being stupid. And, well, I, um, I, I just thought there'd be more music. And of course, the problem with uh, um, movies about musicians and you have other people playing them and singing their songs, yeah. um, it's never quite as... No, I don't think that was a problem. Uh, I mean, I, I thought the performance stuff was good. And I... I and Boz, Boz Lorman made the movie. He's stuff is kind of over the top. Um, and he's I, I've liked maybe one and a half movies he's done. Most of them I don't like because uh, I don't think they hang together at the end. I don't think there's much substance. Uh, it's all frosting. It's no cake. Uh, and that was certainly true of this movie. I thought the, the scenes where he was shooting the concert type stuff, which I saw in the first 20 minutes, 
uh, or at least a good sampling of them, I thought they were good because it's right up Boslerman's alley. It's it's over the top Elvis people going crazy, women jumping the aisles, whatever. But that was the whole movie. I mean, I thought I'd seen the whole movie in the first fifteen minutes. Yeah, Sounds I like think I you did. Had. Yeah. I, you know, I, I didn't quite finish the movie. Um, and it's a long movie. Yeah, and I don't know why I stuck with it as long as I well, did. I, again, I, I got bored. And uh, it's one but, thing to give a negative review, another thing to apologize for watching it, Thompson. I think you've uh, you don't have to apologize for watching it. You, you, no, but if you're if you're just watching it on a plane trip, yeah. And you're not enjoying it? Why wouldn't you just turn it off? You did. Eventually. I watched way too much of it. it God. I was just, uh, I don't know. All right. So while you were watching that, I dialed up uh, a, um, a series called The Last Movie Stars, which is uh, really a um, bio uh, documentary about Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward, uh, led by Ethan Hawke. But it's kind of cleverly done in that uh, what they do is they have transcripts of these tapes that Newman made about his, his life and his life with Joanne. Uh, and they read them. They sort of act them out a little bit. And he brings in all these very well-known actors uh, like Laura Linney and Mark Ruffalo and, and people like that who read these parts. Um, and they have a lot of archival footage. And there's a lot of informal just banter between uh, Hawk and these actors about what they recall of Newman, what they knew of Newman, what they thought of Newman as an actor. Uh, and I managed to see the first two episodes. And I won't s- say more except to say it was really good. Really good. Really recommend that. So I'm that surprised. was on HBO? It's an HBO Max, yeah. And what was it was called? The, the last, last Movie Stars. Right, the theory so being that they're the last that's movie stars. the only one to remember then. Yes, I think so. For our recommendation. All right, so you have uh, the art. Well, this was the weekend where... Um, I guess about twice a year, the uh, Times puts out a big uh, um, couple of uh, sections about the museums, what's in museums. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of advertising and discussion of uh, what to see all over the country. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to talk about that. <laughs> okay. Because uh, I didn't really, I didn't have time to digest it. I, you know, I was running around. Playing with uh, well, I don't think you were that impressed pepper. by it. I mean, there's nothing you read. You no, 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 no. There was plenty, but I, I didn't really, I didn't have, I really didn't have time okay. to prepare. All right, you can talk okay? about it next. You misunderstood week. what I said. All right, right? fine. I'm not, I'm not ready to say uh, what to, uh, to, to, to. I just didn't totally digest it. Okay. Okay. But I have a couple little snippets of things. One is uh, speaking of airports. Um, and speaking of Denver, we always think about Denver when we're visiting Noel. Mm-hmm. She grew up in Denver. Um, apparently, there's this uh, famous giant blue fiberglass uh, horse rearing in front of the Denver airport. Yeah. Um, and I love public art like that. I love giant art. Mm-hmm. Um, who doesn't? And... Um, uh, it just uh, so there's an article about all the weird art of the Denver airport in the Sunday uh, business section, actually, mm. and how the Denver airport, you know, has been using art and using conspiracy theories that grow up around the art uh, to enhance their publicity. Mm-hmm. It's like you know PR, free publicity. Mm-hmm. Um, so and you know I glanced at that. that uh, that's kind of a fun article if you want to go into it. But the thing that struck me about the big blue horse is it actually ended up killing its 
creator. Right, I read that. The artist who was putting it together. Yeah. Um, in the process of assembling the 9,000-pound cast fiberglass sculpture, a piece came loose and severed an artery in yeah. his leg, yeah. and he died. Yeah. I mean, that's some killer sculpture. Yeah. Okay, so that's impressive. Then there was a, an interesting little article in the Times about digitizing a catalog uh, from the 19th century of silhouettes. Mm -hmm. Okay, there was a, a silhouette artist, mm. um, William Beach, who worked... Uh, very early 19th century, like uh, 1803 to 1812. Mm -hmm. And he traveled around and he did silhouettes. He had a thing called the Fisnio Trace, which is a mechanical device that could trace your profile. Mm -hmm. And he would use that to trace an exact profile, uh, cut out uh, that profile, and, uh, um, you know, Finish it up a little bit with touches of curly hair or whatever, mm -hmm. and you'd end up with uh, four little silhouette portraits of yourself for about twenty-five cents. Mm -hmm. So this is, you know, before the um, before photography mm -hmm. is uh, invented, which makes portraiture very inexpensive. Um, but uh, you know, this is. Was an inexpensive way for people to have portraits during mm -hmm. that period. Anyway, the fun of this is there's this catalog. The weirdness about the catalog was it was coated in arsenic. Yeah, I saw that too. So that at first, uh, people are dealing with it. That first of all, they have to figure out how to deal with it without um, right. getting sick or dying in the process. But the big deal is they were able to digitize nearly 2,000 silhouettes. And working with, like, Ancestry.com, they were able to identify mm -hmm. um, quite a huge percentage. Well, some of the people uh, were famous. But some of the people were famous, but uh, they were also able, you know, he traveled all over Maryland, Virginia. He's from mm -hmm. Philadelphia. He ends up in New Orleans for a few years. Mm -hmm. And they actually were able to identify mm -hmm. uh, a significant number by digitizing, making it available on the internet, mm -hmm. um, and and the um, it's in the Smithsonian, it's part of the Smithsonian uh, National Portrait mm -hmm. Collection, and uh, if you Google it, you can actually look at the um, you go online and look at the portraits and read about the process, mm -hmm. but uh, you know again we're you know slowly discovering so much more about our world, and uh, by um, our modern conveniences of the internet, it's just kind of fun. And on that note, uh, archaeologists recently discovered um, some new treasures in a bathhouse in England. So you know that, well, you've heard of bath, right? Yeah. And you know that, uh, you know, uh, Roman-style baths uh, were popular uh, in, you know, about... Uh, 2,000 years ago, mm -hmm. you know, in the times of the uh, Roman uh, occupation of uh, England, mm -hmm. right? And so in near a Roman fort near Hadrian's Wall in Carlisle, England, um, in the process of uh, digging up a, um, excavating a cricket club that has been built over 
an old uh, bathhouse, they're finding all these treasures that had seeped down into the drain of these pools. Mm -hmm. So, um, you, you know, if you went to the baths, you had to change out of your clothes. Well, somebody had to guard your clothes or, you know, and um, some people had uh, brought their slaves to do it. Some people hired some people to mm -hmm. do it. And, and some things maybe you kept yourself. You had mm -hmm. your ring. You kept your ring on uh, mm -hmm. in, uh, in the bath, in the pools. And uh, apparently some of these rings kind of came apart and they would have little uh, stones carved uh, with images, mm -hmm. you know, gods and goddesses or whatever, uh, were very popular uh, going way back. And, uh, you know, they seem to have fallen out. They have also found hair, um, pins, bracelets, uh, all kinds of fun things. So... Um, Animal bones, little clay figures. Uh, so it's a, a whole new uh, treasure trove of discoveries. Uh, not not too dissimilar from uh, you know digging up uh, good old Richard the Third, right? Well, remember he was yeah, yeah, he was yeah, under yeah, right 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 you yeah. know, he was he was uh, under a parking lot. This was under like tennis courts uh, cricket, in a cricket field. The movie on. Lost King is that the movie? The Lost King, yeah. yeah. Okay. So that's just you know a couple of fun things I was. I was not you know the, the hair would put me off. I can't get excited about the hair, but uh, the other stuff, the jewelry, hair pins. Yeah, I thought you not said hair. hair. Oh, okay, no, good. I'm glad. Pins. I'm glad to hear that. You're just thinking of maybe there was hair in the drain too. Yeah, I mean, I what I do you normally that, see in a drain? I don't know if that you know? really survived right. uh, for two thousand years, but good. Okay, so let's go back. To Broadway, they, you know, they announced the Tony nominations. We're not going to get into that because everybody's covering that. Or everyone is interested. Um, but uh, a couple things came up that kind of were, I thought, a little bit uh, interesting. Um, first of all, there was the opening of Dear Oscar. You being the only person I know who has been a lifelong Oscar Levant fan. And now they have a musical about Oscar Levant. So maybe you should explain quickly first who Oscar Levant was. We've no talked one, about this before. I don't think we did. Yeah, we've talked about it a lot. Yeah, you really think so? Yeah. Well, in any event. Sean Hayes is doing a one-man show where yeah. he plays Oscar Levant. I mean, Oscar I, Levant was just, uh, you know, he was, uh, in the end, he describes himself as a Gershwin wannabe. Yeah, but also, you know. You know he, he, he was... A piano player, right. and uh, I guess a comedian or whatever, and um, he 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 just was an odd guy. He ends up uh, on a yeah, lot of I mean, ga game shows. Well, no, yeah, but he shows. does. What do What's my shows? line and stuff like that? Yeah, quiz shows. But he he he's an iconoclastic. It wasn't iconoclastic uh, figure. He had a very harsh sense of humor. He made all these acerbic remarks. They quote him here as saying, "Elizabeth Taylor, always a bride, never a bridesmaid." You know that kind of joke, and. Uh, which I, you know, when I was very growing acerbic. up, I thought that was hilarious yeah, stuff. It's not that the, seemed very different I'm from laughing on the inside. The humor yes, yes. in Kensington, Maryland. Yes, he okay. was very sharp witted, and he was just odd. Sitting. He was always, you know, he's always smoking, and he was always supposedly so, hyped up by too much coffee. So he's an something. odd figure to revisit. I mean, yes, they compare yes. him to uh, they call him the Salieri to Gershwin's Mozart. And we ran into people who have seen this show, right? And, and, and so we and had high saying, hopes. They had and high they hopes. all said to me. What did they say? I never heard of Oscar Levant okay, before. Okay, there you go. There you go. Um, but they liked it. 
but they thought, but now they're interested. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and and so Sean Hayes is playing him. He seems like an odd guy because if you thought of Sean Hayes before, he's a very pleasant, almost bland personality, and now he's playing this jagged-edged uh, pianist. He is uh, he, he is an excellent piano player, and he majored with in music mental health co- issues. With mental, not not Sean Hayes, Oscar Levant. Oscar Levant. He's playing a guy yeah, right. who's on the edge. So it's kind over of the edge. it's ambitious, and I expected it to be to be given great reviews, and it was not. Uh, Jesse Green in the Times gave it a pretty negative review, and I saw a review in the Post, which was also negative. They usually are disagree. Whatever it is, one's positive, one's negative. They're both negative. It's not a good sign. But uh, we'll probably see it, and it'll be easier to get tickets, you know, because it's not being uh, celebrated. Uh, No, but you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to just see it and say, well, that doesn't seem like him. Oh, no, I I think you will. I think you will. I don't think that's the problem. I think the problem is that they're watching it. It's like Oscar Levant, and they don't really cotton Oscar Levant. I think that's really what's going on. But we'll find. We'll see it. It was interesting to see what would happen, what the reaction was. I think what attracted me to him was just that he was so different. Yeah, I think that's true. That's true. And so, but maybe that's not, it's not like it's a personality you aspire to. You don't have but the show, you don't just have shows about people you aspire to be. I mean, that's not... Or, or like. Yeah. No, there's a, there's a lot of, uh, I think, um, feeling now that you have to appreciate what kind of person they are. All right. Well, maybe and, that's it. I don't, I don't know. I don't think he's someone you admire. He's not someone you would celebrate. Right. So then there was uh, a show that we did see off-Broadway called Harmony, which was the uh, show written by Barry Manilow. Uh, with music by Barry, Man- Barry Manilow, about a German singing group uh, upended, as they say here, by the rise of Nazism. Uh, you know, they were a popular group in the 30s in Germany. Uh, and we talked about that before. And it was a real group. Yeah. yeah it was a real, a real group. Yeah, they were called in Horror. It, it was a real group. Yeah, you know, spectacular success yes. performing. Right. And then the Nazis put a kibosh well, on their performances right. Because they had some Jewish members, and uh, well, and the Nazis, you know, destroyed a lot of things. So, um, and we thought it was a very interesting musical. Uh, I don't. I think we even discussed briefly whether it had a commercial future. Could it go to Broadway? I think we concluded that would be difficult. That they'd have to make substantial changes, probably. Uh, in any event, the news is it's coming to Broadway. So we'll see how that goes. Maybe they'll make substantial changes. Maybe we're completely off. But if they bring the show that we saw to Broadway, uh, I think that'll be challenging. I, I, you know, it, it, it had some interesting things in it, but it didn't quite hang. It was the way I recall. You know? No? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. That was a great, great field trip. It was a great field trip. Because the um, it was way down in Battery Park. Yeah. What was the name of the venue? Know. It was the Jewish Jewish Museum. Um, was it? Yeah, they they'll, they'll have it here. Keep talking. I'll, I'll um, get it. And uh, we went down there. We had dinner at an Italian restaurant right on the water, mm-hmm. and the view out the window was the Statue of Liberty, and people looking at the Statue of Liberty. And uh, it was, you know, it wasn't the greatest food in the world, but it was absolutely delightful. It was a ridiculously cold, windy um, winter night. And uh, the show was pretty, 
darn terrific. Yeah, so it was at the uh, what's called the Museum of Jewish Heritage in Lower Manhattan, and was put on by a group called the Yiddish Folksbean. Yes, but that's sort of a subgroup. They're in charge of the production, I guess. But anyway, so this this is this show has been under production for ever twenty five years. Yeah, and yeah. Um, yeah. that one we saw was the latest effort and now yeah so the group was technically called the comedian harmonists and uh it's barry manilow that's the other thing the big headline barry manilow when it gets on broadway it's going to be barry manilow presents and i'm sure they'll have a lot of money in it they tried to bring it to broadway about 20 years ago and it ran out of money yeah it's a challenge to bring it look we saw kimberly akimbo and we sagely observed that it would never quite make it to broadway it was a little too thin uh, and, of course, it's doing well on Broadway. It's gotten some nominations uh, for Tony's. Is it doing well? I can't say. But it's not doing horribly. It's doing something. What do you mean we said it wouldn't go to Broadway? It was already going to Broadway when we saw yeah, okay. it. Okay. All right. Did we think it was going to succeed in Broadway? Oh, okay. I, I didn't. Let me put it this way. I didn't think it would succeed. I thought they were taking a big chance. And, again, I don't. for all I know, they're losing money. Uh, what do I know? But, uh, you know, it's tough. It's tough to do that kind of thing. And then there was an article in the, in the Times which was about something at the uh, Irish Repertory, which is in New York, which we always talk about going to. We haven't quite made it yet. Uh, and they're doing a play called uh, Love Letters. Uh, no, they're not doing Love Letters. They're doing Dear Liar. Uh, and this is by A.R. Gurney, who also wrote uh, Love Letters. And what's interesting about both those shows is they're based on letters. You bring the actors in, and they're reading letters. And you saw Love Letters, if I recall correctly. You saw a production of Love Letters? Am I wrong about that? I don't think so. Okay. You saw uh, What I Wore, I guess. But you, yes. you didn't see Love Letters. Yes. Okay. Um, so, but, but what's interesting in the, this article is they make the point that uh, these shows based on letters kind of have an inherent dramatic structure. And of course, uh, we saw we saw the show recently, the Sarah Rule show, uh, about what was that Max something or letters from Max, which again was a letter structure. And um, well, the it, article basically says Sarah Rule is the master right. at using letters right. to uh, write a play. She has two or three shows based on that. But they make this observation, which kind of resonated with me. They say correspondence is an accumulation. And truth has a way of creeping in. What the writers mean to reveal about themselves and what they don't realize they're letting slip. We, the audience, see where they disappoint one another, where their friendships falter, where other people in their lives feel threatened by the bond they forged. We see, too, where they love one another more desperately than they intended. It's all very dramatic. And so we lean in. I think that's right. I mean, it's such an inherently dramatic structure, just an exchange of letters. It seems if I was writing a play now, that's what I. That's what I might try. Exchange well, where are you going to get letters? Nobody you, writes letters. No, you have to create letters to write a play. All I'm saying. You're, you're going to write the. I'm letters? not saying I'm going to I write. I don't think that would be as good. It's an easy. It's, well, I'd have to. You know, you know Sarah rules are mostly from real letters. Uh, well, the Max I, letters are her letters, I, and Max's I'm not. I'm not letters. aspiring to be and Sarah Rule. And she also Rule. did one uh, based on. Um, uh, yeah, the posts. The, Elizabeth Bishop and Robert Lowell again, are, real. Yeah. Real letters. Letters. I understand. But, you know, if you were writing something, you could create your own letters. I mean, these letters, the love letters play, uh, is, is creative letters. It's not real letters. The Aragorn play. Yeah. 
And Dear Liar, well, the Dear the, Liar is well, real letters. The, um, Dear Liar are the, the real letters, letters from George, George Bernard, Bernard Shaw. Shaw. Yeah, you're right. And Mrs. Patrick Campbell. Let me go actress. back to love letters. Love letters, they're creative letters. I think, you know. You could write a play like that. It's an easy way to write a play. You don't. It, it's easier than than starting from scratch well, and building some, a world. Find some real letters. I, I'm just telling you, you don't need real letters. I'm just telling you, it's better if they're real. It's better if they sound real. How's that? It's going to be hard to find letters that are worthy of that. Uh, and, you know, easier to make it up. Uh, all right. And so just closing on sports, there's two things. Number one is, you know, over the last week we had the NFL draft. I'm not going to comment on the NFL draft except to say this, which startles me. That the NFL draft is this now huge popular event. I mean, think what the NFL is able to pull off. They're out of season. Right, uh, out of season completely, and they have this thing where people are going to pick their collegiate players for next year, and it is such a big television draw. More people watch the NFL draft at this point in time than the Academy Awards. That's what the Times said. More than the Academy Awards is that? That's stunning. Well, why do they think that is? It's because the NFL is that popular. Because people are that excited, and, and I, I don't know. It's 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 hard to give a reason because I don't watch it. And I don't see the point why. So to me, I can read about it the next day. You know, who cares? But uh, I don't know. It's a, it's a combination. It's sort of a performance element. Right. You have these kids there with their families. They're excited to be picked. They draft. They wear weird outfits. They jump on top of the commissioner to show their excitement. It doesn't sound to me like ace television. But, but you know. So that's your whole story? That's all I wanted to say about the NFL draft. Because I more... you think it's uh, weird that it's such a thing? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Obviously not that interesting, but something. It's something. So there were two. Let me just finish with something about basketball, which is in season. So we're in the playoffs now. And you mentioned to me that um, there was something, uh, some fuss made about a speech that Steph Curry, the great player for the Warriors, made recently. And it's a speech. I looked it up. You're right. They said he delivered the greatest speech of his career. Okay before the critical Game 7 they had at the end of Round 1. So uh, before game, not mid-game. No, before the game. Before the game. Yes, and here's what he said to his team. If you're getting on this bus, they had to take a bus to the game in California, you're making a commitment to this team. I don't care how many minutes you play. I don't care if you don't play a single second. I don't care if it's points, rebounds, whatever it is. But if you're getting on this bus, you are saying, I am going to do whatever it takes, as far as my preparation goes, to win this game. That's the, the core of this speech, okay? And I'm saying to myself, that's fine. But I've seen speeches like that a thousand times. What interested me uh, much more was I saw a speech that, uh, a speech or it really is an interview, a post-game interview with Giannis, uh, the, the uh star of the Milwaukee Bucks, the superstar. Uh, and we've talked about him before. Great, famous uh, Greek athlete who um, had humble beginnings and has become tremendously successful in the NBA. And he's the face of the Milwaukee Buck fan tri- uh, franchise. And they interviewed him after the game, after a disappointing seventh game loss. They lost the game. And Yana uh, is there in front of a microphone. And they say to him, and they were huge favorites, how do you deal 
with a failure like this, right? And Giannis looks at them like uncomprehendingly and says, there's no failure in sports. There's good days, bad days. Some days you're able to be successful. Some days you are not. Some days it's your turn. Some days it's not your turn. And that's what sports is about. You don't always win. Some other people are going to win. And this year, somebody else is going to win. They're going to come back next year and try to be better. That, to me, is a great speech. Okay. That's a guy who really gets it. And believe it or not, he was criticized for that. Really? Yeah, because he, quote, doesn't get it. Because he doesn't know how important it is to win. Because he's willing to accept defeat. When he's just looking at it with, an, with you know, uh, what I consider the foundation, foundationally required intelligence to navigate your way through the world. And he's saying, I'm putting this in perspective. I can see it for what it is, even while in the moment I can give it my all. So to me, it, it, it's stunning that a young athlete can come out after losing a heartbreaking game. They lost by one point mm-hmm. and, and make those remarks. So I'll be reading that to my uh, high school basketball team next season. Okay. All right? All right. So uh, you're, you're, you look concerned. No, no, no. no. I, I, I think it's good. You know, the Greeks are known for wisdom. Oh, I, I should have known. I, I fell right into your lap there with the Greeks. You're right. Maybe that's where it all comes from. Maybe his background, the fact that he wasn't born in this, you know, sort of highly competitive American uh, hothouse of uh, youth basketball. Maybe he sees things with a little more perspective. Yeah, Is that yeah, possible? He might have more of the long-term view. Yeah, he might. <laughs> considering that he was dirt poor and now he's got $25 million, he might have a broader view of the situation. That's a good point. Okay, so that's it for this week. All right, I'm going to go back and read the museum section. Uh, all right, I'm going to continue to recover from the flight back yesterday from California. Okay, and uh, we'll be back next week. This is Tamson Granger. You got it. And Dan Abuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan, read the paper, or, or trying to. See you next week.